0: Before we get started, I was supposed to have been saying earlier that um, we have children's programming as well at the dinner table tonight. I just couldn't see that uh, in the sign language of non-sign language, so um, I'd invite you to turn with me to Mark chapter 1, we're going to be in verses 21 through 28 this morning, and that is going to be in page 994 of your pew Bible, probably exactly where we were last week. Uh, And if you would, please stand with me as I read God's word. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift that you are to us and for the gift of your word. We ask that you would at this time that you would come and that you would speak to our hearts. Lord, that you would open our eyes, that we would see Jesus clearly for all that he is. We pray in his name. Amen. Mark 1, starting in verse 21. And they, that's Jesus and the disciples, went into Capernaum. And immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread throughout, spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. This is God's inspired word for us this morning, so please be seated. Now, as we start in this morning, you'll find Jesus and his disciples heading into the fishing village of Capernaum, uh, which is on the northern shore of the the sea, really the lake of Galilee. And we know that Jesus had been already teaching in this area because as he went into the synagogue, he was invited by the leaders of the synagogue to come and to share a word from the Lord. Now, this was sort of a... um, you know, just a privilege that people would offer to someone who was visiting to a to a visiting preacher or teacher, and this this is something that still exists sometimes uh, in some churches. You know, in the Dominican Republic, we've served in the city of Samana, and the church there has an area that kind of looks like the choir loft, but it's really up on the side. And if they're having some sort of special service, that's where all the visiting like pastors and preachers and like their special guests will sit. And and I didn't know this at at the beginning when we started going down there, but if you are someone that's visiting like a missionary or a pastor, they will often invite you to come and to share a word from the Lord. Now imagine if you're not quite prepared for that, uh, you may not have as many words from the Lord to share uh, as somebody else, it'd be customary for someone to go up and and to to share maybe a 15 or 20 minute, um, essentially mini sermon uh, from what we've seen. And so Jesus, is, is looking around, and, and, and he's there, he's invited, he had been preaching in the area, and he's, in, he's asked to come up and to share from the Torah. And, and as he is teaching the congregation, the scripture says they were astonished at his teaching. The, the Greek term here for astonished quite literally means, like, struck down. Like, they're bowled over, they're knocked flat on their faces because of the teaching of Jesus. And why is that? It says, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. They were blown away by the power and the authority of the teaching they were hearing from Jesus. And it wasn't because they didn't normally go to church, but it was actually because they normally went to church that the teaching of Jesus stuck out to them so much. See, Jesus didn't teach like the normal teachers they were used to hearing. You know, how did they teach? Well, in, in Matthew 23, Jesus lists off some uh, rather damning words about the teaching and the lifestyle of the religious leaders at the time. He called them hypocrites. Of course, a hypocrite is a person that says one thing, and they do something else. They're, they're really a, an imposter, you know, someone who never has any intention of doing What they say, you know, I'll I'll be very honest that even though I've been a a pastor now for almost two years, I often feel very much like an imposter when I get to to come up and share the word of God with you. You know, and there's this little voice inside me that says, you know, if those people only knew the words that you speak when you're not in the pulpit, right, if they, they only knew how you acted when you're not in public, if they only saw those thoughts that come through your mind when it's not Sunday morning at 1030, You know, not only would you not be allowed here, but you might not be allowed in the building at all. The Pharisees didn't have that imposter syndrome feeling. You know, all of us are hypocrites in in some form or another, but they deliberately taught the word of God in a manner which made it impossible for other people to obey. Not only were they hypocritical, but they were also intentionally exclusionary. And Jesus said of them, you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. Their teaching did not bring hope of what God could do. Instead, all it offered was despair and dejection. Their audiences were constantly being shamed and made to feel inferior and unworthy, not only of not being in the presence of God, but they were made to feel unworthy of even being in the presence of such good leaders and teachers. The the religious leaders wanted people to look up to them, not as examples that they should imitate, but as just superior human beings. Their their preaching and their teaching didn't include the concepts of of love or grace or mercy, even though that's how God had revealed himself to his people way back in the book of Exodus through their great forefather Moses, when God called himself a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So they taught that the way to heaven was through perfect, perfor- perfect performance and meticulous merit. Now, they didn't just teach what the scriptures said, but they actually added on their own laws. They made it difficult, even impossible, and they discouraged other people to even attempt to obey God. Jesus also called them blind guides, which kind of gives us this funny picture of of an unseeing tour guide describing places he's never been to other people who also can't see. They spoke in ways that made no logical sense. They said things like, you know, if you swear by the temple, that doesn't mean anything. But if you swear by the gold in the temple, well, then you're then you're bound to your oath. Or if you swear by the altar, that means nothing. But if you swear by your gift that you put on the altar, then you're bound by your oath. And Jesus said, wait, which one's more valuable, the the gold of the temple or the God of the temple? Is it the sacrifice that you brought to the altar, or is it the altar of sacrifice itself? See, their, their teaching didn't make sense. It wasn't logical. It was nonsensical. And then when it came time to offer their gifts to God, they they opened up their pockets, and I wish I brought some. But they they counted out their mint and their dill and their cumin. You know, can you imagine this? We're actually growing some uh, some herbs on our counter right now. That's one of those special light things that you know comes on by itself and shuts off by itself. But can you imagine pulling out you know these herbs out of your pocket and just you know picking off individual leaves? You know, think having people think those people are so concerned about obedience that they won't even let a few extra sprigs of of thyme or cumin or, or dill be in their spice basket. And yet Jesus said that you've neglected the weightier matters of the law. Like justice, mercy, and faithfulness, this would kind of be like getting over after plowing through a bunch of kids in a school zone and you tell the officer, well, hey, I've got my seatbelt on. It didn't quite matter at that point, does it? Not only did they not teach on justice and mercy and faith, but they didn't practice them either. Those were the only things that really mattered. We might say that they majored on the minors and they minored on the majors, except that, that would be giving them a little bit too much credit. Really, they zeroed on the majors. They didn't even try. You know, instead, they spent all of their time perfecting their appearance while they were ignoring their own hearts. Jesus said they were like filthy cups that were cleaned up on the outside but without being washed on the inside. You know, For a while, I had this bad habit of every time I would go to get a cup of coffee, I would always grab a new mug from the church office. And and I would take it, and I would bring it up to my desk, and I would drink almost all of it, and then I would leave that there, and then I'd get a little bit thirsty later, and I'd go back down, I'd get a new mug of coffee, and I'd I'd take it back up, and by the end of the week, I'd have this little pile of of coffee mugs on my desk. And not only were they previously used, but I discovered that, you know, if you leave a couple mouthfuls of coffee sitting somewhere for a while, they start to um, grow. You know, they, they would develop some, some white and some green fuzz and, and at the bottom. And they were—I uh, learned a couple—another thing, too, that apparently if you don't clean your own coffee mugs, somebody else will be so disgusted by them that they will come and remove them and clean them themselves. And so they magically would disappear at the end of the week. See, but Jesus taught in such a way that was completely different. He spoke with power and authority on the subject of God because he was the authority. When he spoke of the kingdom of heaven, he was speculating, telling people about a place that he had never been to. He was taking them on a tour, describing his home in a way that they could understand. You know, in, in our process, our family's process of adoption, and we've, we've done this now several times. We started by trying to adopt through China, and now it looks like the door's closing there for us. And so now we're adopting through um, Alabama DHR. But before you adopt, they have to do something called a home study, where a caseworker will come to your house and, and make sure that, you know, that the, the kids are not being neglected, if there's kids in the home, that your dog, you know, our dog is very ferocious towards squirrels and other dogs, but you know, towards people, she's very nice. You know, they wanna make sure everything's fine. And so when the social worker came to our house, they, they asked the, the kids to take them on the tour. Now the tour that my children will give you of my home is a lot different than the tour that I might give you on the home, right? They take them around, hey, you see that carpet stain on the carpet? That's where we spilled this, you know, dirt the one time. Or oh notice all the, the jackets on the floor in the closet. That's where we play hide and seek and we pull them up over our heads. And, you know, that's my sister's room. She won't let us go inside because she's really, you know, she really doesn't like us to come and mess with her Legos. You know, stuff like that. And you know, that's the type of tour that you can only get from someone that lives there. And so as Jesus is taking people on a tour of heaven, he is the authority because that's his home. He is the authority on the word of God because he is the word of God, God in the flesh. And the scribes and the Pharisees, they had this horrible habit of using too many words making simple things of God overly complicated and not comprehensible to the average person. But Jesus was exactly the opposite. He used everyday language and he told a lot of stories that anybody could relate to. He said the kingdom of, of heaven is like a field or a seed, a bush, a net, a wedding banquet, a farmer. See, Jesus had this way of taking profound ideas and making them simple so that anyone can understand that no one would need an advanced theology degree to understand his teaching. You know, the, the traits of a master teacher are simplicity and clarity and, when possible, brevity. You know, everyone hates the teacher who gives the test that no one can pass. I don't know if you ever had that professor who would give a, an exam, and if you got like a 50 on the exam, you might get an A because of the, the curve at the end of the... It's not to say that Jesus' teaching was easy or that he was somehow lowering God's standards. His message wasn't watered down. It wasn't some sort of a theology light, but he was actually raising the bar, calling God's people back to the heart and the truth of God's word. See, Jesus said that God's favor isn't achievable by tithing from your spice rack, that obedience actually flows from love. Loving God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, and then then flowing back out into the world. When you think about it, it's no wonder that the demon was perfectly happy in the synagogue until Jesus showed up. Did you catch this idea that, that that the demon was sitting there the entire time? That the man didn't just enter the building after Jesus started preaching? He felt right at home in this monument to false religion the teaching of the Pharisees, it wasn't just boring and trivial and confusing and self-promoting, but it was cold-hearted and dead. There's no grace. There's no truth. There's no hope. There's no power. And so Satan's minions gladly sat in such a godless place, watching in smug satisfaction, while all these pitiful souls around them wallowed in despair and self-hatred while listening to teachers who droned on and on and on. Somebody once told me that the worst crime a teacher, a preacher, can commit is to make the gospel boring. Because it's a travesty to turn the most wonderful, beautiful, epic story into something like a lifeless lecture. But this was actually worse than making people fall asleep. It was allowing them to stay asleep in a spiritual coma. In the screw tape letters, uh, C.S. Lewis details one demon encouraging another demon and how to uh, attack other people and this is what he says about the church he says one of our great allies at present is the church itself he explains that many churches are no threat at all to satan because church people fixate so easily on things that don't really matter like what color is the carpet Or some off-key singer sitting next to you. How about the, the squeal of a hearing aid going off nearby? Or a cell phone or someone's clothes or shoes or their tie or their lack of a tie? You know, we get so fixated on so many little things. All sorts of things that make no eternal difference that prevent our hearts from truly engaging in worship. See, if the church is distracted... If the church is dissatisfied, if the church is divisive, then Satan's work is already done for him. If we tear the place apart on her own, then we're no concern to the enemy at all. He's content when we don't care for the wounded who limp through the doors looking for healing and hope, knowing that we'll often just finish them off ourselves. But Jesus was nothing like those people. Right? His teaching was powerful. It was profound, yet it was simple. It was imaginative, but it was also relatable. It was kingdom-centered and life-giving and and spirit-filled. Charles Spurgeon said that sermons from the heart go to the heart. And we see the heart of Jesus here not, not to be served, but to serve. And as the demon heard Jesus, he understood that his game had changed. He started screeching, maybe in like a golem like voice. I don't know if any of you can do this. You know, sort of the, you know, what have you to do with us? Jesus of Nazareth, have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. I can't do it all the way. Sorry. (laughs) The, the, The demon was the only one in the synagogue who knew the true identity of Jesus, he knew where Jesus came from. He knew the full force of the power of Jesus. He knew that Jesus had already been tested and tried in the wilderness by his master, and he had actually passed with flying killers, the first human to ever do that. The, de- the demon's theology was perfect, but it wasn't enough to save him. Right? It's not enough to just know about Jesus or to affirm his identity in the right way. Knowledge means nothing without a faith-fueled repentance and life transforming belief. And so what does the demon do? He tries to prevent the congregation from receiving the words of Jesus by revealing his own secret identity. And this wasn't just a mental health issue, but this was demonic possession, which is really a perverted attempt at the incarnation. Right, Jesus is God in the flesh, and here's a demon evil in the flesh. He shrieks and convulses and creates such a scene that I, I, you can't even imagine... Uh, those who were in attendance, they would never forget this moment. And he tries to invalidate Jesus by, by associating him with evil, by, by allowing people to think, hey, do you really want to follow this guy that only the demons know who he is? But what does Jesus do? He shuts him right down. See, after, after the demon fled, in verse 27, we, we read, And they were all amazed, so they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. See, so the teaching of Jesus alone already in comparison to the scribes bowled the people over. And now that they saw the power of Jesus, that even the demons obeyed him, the world was rocked again. Okay, so so demons are scared of Jesus. Here's the question. What does that mean? For us, how does this affect our lives today? I've got three things that I'd like us to consider as we close. The first one is, have we heard the message of Jesus? The second is, have we seen the power of Jesus? And the third is, do we know the heart of Jesus? So first, have we heard the message of Jesus? Are we aware of just how different the message of the gospel is from the message of the world? You know, I heard a preacher say recently that the world says the problem is outside and the answer is inside. And Jesus says the problem is inside and the answer is outside. So the world says the problem with my life is that I don't have the right job or the right clothes or the right friends or the right education or the right spouse, the right kids. And it may be if I can just make some better choices, if I can just get my act together. If I try a little bit harder and make some other changes in life, then I'll finally be fulfilled. But Jesus says the problem isn't out there. right? The problem is inside. The external of our life is really just a window into our hearts. Now, I drive a, a 17-year-old car at times when it's driving, and it, it likes to ding and flash anytime it develops a new problem. Now this is really annoying. Like, it's, it's so, so much the so way I hear that ringing, I kind of like go into anxiety right away thinking, oh gosh, what's wrong now? Right? But imagine if I just took a piece of black electrical tape and I put it over the dashboard so I couldn't see that light. And if I somehow disem- disassembled that little ding so that I could never hear when the alarm was going off. Well, would that fix my problem? Not for very long. In fact, well, I've tried to ignore things like that in the past, and they usually don't work out very well. See, the, the gospel says that my biggest problem is my heart. It's sick with sin, and I can't perform my own heart surgery. I need someone else from outside to come and fix for me what is broken inside. Secondly, have we seen the power of Jesus? See, when Jesus commanded the demon to leave it, Mark says it obeyed. In fact, the people make that that, uh, connection. Even the demons obey. In the book of Mark, we only find the word "obey" two times. First is right here in regard to the unclean demon. And the second is in Mark chapter 4, after Jesus calms a storm and his disciples wonder out loud, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? So demons cower and waves are stilled at the command of their creator. But the question is, have we submitted our lives to Jesus? Do we trust his power that he can handle anything that we bring to him? If we're followers of Jesus, do we believe that this same spirit of Jesus is inside of us and is actually greater than any opposition that we could ever face? We went to the the Pittsburgh Zoo over the winter, um, over Christmas, while we were visiting my parents. And they've got this really cool um, polar bear exhibit. Outside of the polar bear exhibit, they have this massive metal tube, which is apparently what you use to trap polar bears in the wild when when they're in a place that they're not supposed to be. Now, do you know how big a polar bear can get? Up to 1,500 pounds. Now, if you have the spirit of Jesus inside of you, Okay, Jesus is saying that that even a a demonic evil spirit would be like a three year old toddler compared to a polar bear. That that's how much authority and power you have through Christ Jesus who lives in you. The most powerful man to ever walk the earth did not wear an Alabama football jersey. He did not carry a firearm but with a single word, the powers of evil and the powers of nature completely surrendered. But he doesn't force us into submission. He offers us his power, and then he invites us to come and to follow him, to join his rescue mission to save the world. Third and finally, do we know the heart of Jesus? You know, once again, it's, it's not enough to know information about Jesus. It's not enough to have the right answers to the right questions. The answer, the question is, do we know his heart? Do we really know him? If someone asked us why Jesus came, what would we say? You know, who did his, his heart go out to? Well, in this passage, we actually see that, that Jesus came to the lost and the broken and the proud. Think of those people in the congregation. They were lost. They came to the synagogue every time looking for hope and spiritual direction, but they never found any, not until Jesus showed up. And the man with unclean spirit was broken. He was so broken that an evil demon actually felt right at home inside of him. And the leaders of the synagogue were proud. They were so proud that they couldn't even recognize when the Son of God walked in the room. See, instinctively, we tend to believe that our sins aren't really that bad, especially compared to other people. And I can always give you a list of people that are worse than me. I bet you can, too. And if I'm not really that bad, then the truth is I don't I just need a little bit of help. Because I just need some to try a little harder to live a little better. And if my sin isn't really that bad, then my Savior doesn't need to be all that great. And if my savior isn't very great, then he might not be big enough to deal with the big problems of the big sinners in this big world. And the good news is only good news if you're only a person that's not that bad like me. But the heart of Jesus goes out to everyone. Nobody is excluded. The good news of Jesus is good news for everyone and no one is left out. Jesus loves the lost and the wayward. He came as the good shepherd, not just to show the way, but to be the way back into the arms of the loving Father. Jesus loves the broken and the hurting. He came as the good physician to bind up all our wounds and to heal our broken hearts, to do that heart surgery that we couldn't even begin to attempt. And Jesus also loves the proud. In his mercy, he does whatever it takes to get our attention, to wake us up to our big need the big love of a big savior. That is who he is. Won't you pray with me? Gracious Father, we think today of these questions. Have we really heard the message of Jesus? Have we really seen the power of Jesus? and, And do we really know Have we really experienced the heart of Jesus? Father, I pray that you would help us to be honest. Honest with ourselves and, most importantly, honest with you. Lord, you know our need. It is so much greater than we think it is. And yet the good news of the gospel is that God so loved the world that he sent his son. Lord, that you sent him, not because we just needed a little bit of help, but you sent him in the flesh. You sent him to the cross, and you sent him to the grave so that we could know the love of our Father. Lord, we pray that you would open our hearts to receive Jesus. Lord, to live in his power. We pray this in his name. Amen.